Hello and welcome to Intrepid Times, your home for narrative travel writing with heart. I'm Nathan Thomas, and alongside my co-host Jennifer Roberts, we take you behind the scenes of some of our most popular travel stories, get you to meet travel writers, and help you discover how you can share your own travel stories with the world. everyone and welcome back to the Intrepid Times podcast. I'm Jennifer Roberts. Today the podcast is going to feel a little bit different. For today's episode, we've taken excerpts from two of the masterclasses that we offer with Travel Writer Transformation. Travel Writer Transformation is our eight-week writing course. Uh, it's currently open for registration. Uh, the aim of that course is to help budding travel writers, uh, you know, develop their craft, find their voice, uh, kind of get their foot in the door of the travel writing space. With that course, we offer a series of masterclasses. Uh, masterclasses cover everything from the first paragraph to the difference between travel stories and travel guides to getting started as a travel journalist, to marketing your brand. We always really enjoy working with our Travel Writer Transformation cohorts. Uh, it's always a really great experience for, for us as well as the students. The masterclasses are something that Nathan and I really enjoyed recording, um, and there's a lot of great information packed into each one of those. We wanted to offer a couple bits of two of the masterclasses. Uh, the first masterclass that we pulled an excerpt from is on introductions in a travel story. So introductions, right, are super important in any story, travel story or other. The introduction is where you can grab attention and make sure that your reader stays with you. Right? You want to pique their interest, but not give them everything so that they keep reading uh, and end up enjoying your travel story uh, to the fullest. In the excerpt that we've offered in today's podcast episode, uh, we do offer two examples of introductions from two stories published on Intrepid Times. Uh, we go into detail about why those introductions are really effective um, and offer ways that you know travel writers can think about implementing some of the same ideas into their own travel story introductions. The second excerpt is from an, a masterclass on conclusions. So this pairs really nicely with introductions, right? The final paragraph or final couple of paragraphs, those are key in really making sure that your reader leaves the story feeling like things have, you know, the things that you've promised in the travel story, um, you know, any goodwill that you've built up in your travel story, you want to make sure that that is maintained uh, and maybe even enhanced in your conclusion. You know, the conclusion is far from a throwaway paragraph. Uh, it's really key to think about the whole arc of your story, and that includes not only how you start it and how you continue through, through the arc of your story, but how you wrap it all up. If you do it well, it can leave the reader feeling really satisfied. And, you know, ideally they go into the rest of their day reflecting on some of the ideas and some of the imagery uh, that they found in your story. And maybe it inspires them to, to write their own story or to travel to this place. Yeah, a, a good conclusion can do a lot of really amazing things. Uh, so in 
the excerpt that we've included for today's episode. Uh, Nathan and I discussed some of those things, what a, a good conclusion does, and how you can make sure not to let the reader down uh, when you're wrapping up your, your travel story. So yeah, these two excerpts come together to offer a really cohesive view uh, for people who are hoping to, to write a travel story, who maybe aren't really sure how to start their travel story, how to end their travel story. And these are two really important parts to think about when you're writing. Yeah, have a listen. Let us know what you think. Uh, we're really excited to get started with the next group of Travel Writer Transformation students. I will be starting on September 25th, so, so soon. Um, but registration is still open if you're interested. Um, obviously, we offer these two masterclasses that you'll hear excerpts from, but there are many, many more. Um, you know, we get together on, on video chats. Uh, we meet one-to-one -one with writers. We help them develop a travel story. Um, there's a lot of great things that happen in that course, and we, we really love it. Enjoy the episode, and let us know what you think. Uh, let's talk about first paragraphs. Um, the reason why we selected this as the topic it's a very useful springboard to a lot of things, but it's also a way that we can very quickly give members of this group uh, some, some piece of value, some insight into the editor's perspective on your piece of writing and the writing that you send in, which in any editor's worth their salt, and I, I've worked with a lot in the, in the book publishing space, as well as the, you know, the short form publication space that Intrepid Times is will take the time to read the submissions because they, they love it, they're super into it, but there are only so many hours of the day. And, and if you're receiving 20, 30, 40 manuscripts, 50 plus articles per day, you're not going to spend an hour reading each one because it's, it's literally impossible and your eyes will fall out. But you will start with the first paragraph. You will read it. So if people listening to this, if you send out submissions, has every editor you've sent out your submissions to read every word of every story. No, but I'm sure your first paragraphs are being read. And this is a really good opportunity to win a fan, to win a reader, to win a loyal editor who's going to support and champion your work, and then to win the attention of an actual reader when it is published, or to lose someone's attention. And I don't know if you feel this too, uh, Jen, but when I read submissions, I find a lot of really fantastic writing lets itself down by just not doing enough work in that first paragraph. I have definitely found that. I find that I often kind of discover the best pieces of writing kind of towards the middle or maybe even towards the end where I see a really great kind of conclusion. But it's like, oh, I wish I could have seen some of that in that first paragraph where we know that the readers are going to start, where we're going to be able to grab them or we're going to lose them. Right. If we see the best pieces kind of in this middle or the end part, it right, doesn't have that same punch, right, that same grab that we were really looking for in these travel stories. So uh, if we've selected some examples of good first paragraphs, really powerful first paragraphs from Intrepid Times pieces. Uh, Jen, you've chosen a couple, I've chosen a couple, and we'll read those and, and kind of give you a bit of an analysis of what they do. And when you listen to them, the idea isn't that your opening paragraph has to be exactly like one of these, or it has to tick everything on the box. But the idea is that if it, if it doesn't accomplish at least one of the important things that we're talking about here, if it isn't written with purpose, with intention, then you're more likely to lose attention than you are to win it. So a really good opening paragraph will be written with purpose. And that purpose should be something to do with grabbing attention, setting context, and establishing the idea, the mission, the purpose, the structure, some part of the story 
establishes some sense of the story that you want to tell. Um, so, Jen, I don't know if you want to talk more about just the big picture here or if you, you want to just dive in. Let's go ahead and dive into the examples. I feel like there we can get into some more details about exactly what we're trying to talk about here with these first paragraphs. Cool. Uh, why, why don't you take it away? One example that we had pulled was from a story called Street Dancing with Shiva by Fiona Davies. Um, so this one, I'm going to go ahead and read this first paragraph and then we'll dive into some of the details about it. In the ancient Sri Minashki Aman Temple in Madurai, I watch a lone worshipper conduct a ceremony known as puja amid a thickly swirling cloud of perfumed incense. He wears only white dhoti trousers and his brow is streaked with turmeric paste and sweat. Eyes closed in quivering ecstasy, he clasps his hands across his heavily contracting chest in a gesture of prayer. Next, he lowers himself on bent knees, stopping just short of collapsing to the ground. In one fluid movement, he raises himself up, lifting his hands to the heavens and bowing his head to the earth. In a silent, graceful trance, he repeats these motions again and again as the sounds of the temple musicians swirl around towards him, a shrill and feverish crescendo. That's a great example, and this is a really wonderful story that was published on Intrepid Times. Um, so this year or last year, we'll, we'll provide a link with it. So the first thing I notice about this, and Jen, I want to give you the opportunity to talk, talk more about it, but the, the real economy of language, it's wonderfully descriptive, but it's not verbose. I mean, I, I have it written in front of me here, and I can't really think of any words that I would delete. Every word there seems to have a purpose. Right, and I think that... Kind of the strongest thing here I'm noticing is that it appeals to every sense, right? There's this very strong imagery. It's appealing to your sense of smell with the incense, right? You can see this person doing these movements, bowing his head, right? You can hear these different kind of sounds that are around this worshiper, right? You feel this scene. And I think that that is really what brings the reader in at this point. Right, we know that we're in Madurai. For my part, I wouldn't immediately know where that is, but through these descriptions, you kind of start to get a sense that maybe India, maybe Southern Asia somewhere, Southeast Asia, um, it's a temple, so we're assuming, right, maybe Buddhism or Hinduism, but there is something still left to discover. Right? We're not exactly sure where we are. We're not exactly sure what's happening, what the writer is experiencing this moment, why they're here, right? So it's not giving you everything, right? There's a sense of restraint, but there is a lot here that's helping you insert yourself into the story before we get all those extra details. I love what you said there about sense of restraint. And even though when we look at this paragraph and people listening along, we'll, we'll provide it to you so you can read along with us. There is so much information, detail, description, so many senses there. But there's also a great deal that is left out. Uh, the writer didn't say, uh, and again, actually, uh, I need to brush up on my geography, but let's say for the sake of argument, the writer didn't say, Madurai is a city in southern India with a temperate climate and, you know, is situated so-and-so-and-so from New Delhi, and I arrived on a Thursday morning with, uh, with my husband and I had chips for breakfast. You know, there's, <laughs> there's a lot that's excluded, and that just means makes what is included that much more powerful. Right, I think it's important here that we don't we don't know how long this person has been in India. We don't know who they're with. I don't know that we miss it either, right? There's no really necessity here for 
who this person is with, why they're here, right? How long they've been here that we don't need it. Um, we know that this experience is right here in front of us now. And that's what the reader wants to see, I think. Um, so I think that this person did a really good job, Miss Davies. She did a great job, I think, of finding exactly what needed to be inserted in order to give the reader just enough to make them feel like, okay, this can be a really cool story. I'll, I'll hit another example. So now um, we're, we're looking at Shanta the Rasta by Thomas Heaton. Now, Thomas Heaton is a, is, a, is a good friend of mine. He currently works as an editor and travel reporter for the Kathmandu Post uh, in Nepal, which is just an, an awesome job. And I really love his, his writing. And this one, again, you'll, you'll see a lot of similarities between the two. And there was no intention. Jen and I didn't go out thinking, oh, we have to find a bunch of opening paragraphs that tick the following boxes. No, we went back through years of successful and popular intrepid time stories and just chose a few that really worked. And they happen to have a lot in common. I'm quite happy to see that. Here's uh, the example from Thomas Heaton. Buttoning up his shirt, he walks out the stairs to find me sitting with a beer in hand. His name's Shanta, the owner of a guest house in Rana, near Tangali in the south of Sri Lanka. Just 20 minutes ago, he had greeted me with a confused look, shirtless, with a weed whacker idling in his hands. The arrival of a guest seemed to come as a shock to him, despite the fact that I'd booked in advance. Yeah, I'm really glad you chose this example as well. I think that we are also seeing a really strong sense of imagery, right? We're seeing this again, as we saw with uh, Fiona Davies' article, right? We're getting the the sound, right, of that weed whacker. We're getting the confused look, right, the strong visual sense. We get this, like, Sri Lanka, right? We are automatically imagining, like, flowers, tropics, right? So there's already sounds and smells and sights that are coming just from our imaginations in that moment. Exactly. And then again, the, the sensory detail is super important. So this is, um, to, to use a, an expression we'll visit on later, uh, show rather than tell. And Again, I'm noticing that the actual geographical context is, context is very economically described in the start. His name's Shanta, the owner of a guest house in Rana near Tangali in the south of Sri Lanka. There you go. You know exactly where you are. You know exactly where the story is happening. It's really interesting, Jenna, I wonder if you're noticing this too, to revisit these paragraphs that we've loved, that we've chosen to publish, that have been popular uh, with, with a lot of readers on the website. Because when we actually sit and read submissions, it's not like we have an Excel spreadsheet open next to us goes, you know, economically determined <laughs> geographical context, add 10 points. It's when you do this for a, a lot of years, like we do, it's, it's more a matter of intuition, but the intuition represents something. So now as we're sort of reconstructing almost our own subconscious process, it's quite interesting to see what is revealed. The conclusion is an opportunity to seal the deal. If you mess up the conclusion, if you kind of just only do a halfway conclusion, if your piece just sort of pieces out, then you kind of sacrifice the goodwill that you've devoured so far. But if you nail the conclusion, if you do something not necessarily clever, although it can be clever, but if you do something that enhances the emotional value, that solidifies the learnings, and we'll discuss various ideas and techniques, if you pull off your conclusion, not only do you preserve the goodwill that you brought up, preserve the impressions, but you actually enhance it as well. You actually allow the reader to frame, to internalize, to experience what you've already written in a more meaningful way. Jim, um, 
Well, what are your thoughts on conclusions? I don't think people necessarily think of conclusions as such an important part of a story, but they really are. Right. I think I feel that a lot of stories we see conclusions almost feel like an afterthought. Right. People get so invested in the introduction and like the meat of the story and then they don't really know how to bring it all together into a really valuable like final paragraph or final couple paragraphs as conclusions sometimes are. But those moments are really the ones that can stick with a reader the most. If you give them something to hold on to in the end, they may remember that article just for the conclusion for months, years, right? If you leave them with a strong image or a strong emotion right at the very end, right? That's likely what they're going to carry away. And so this isn't something to just be kind of thought of when you're done with the rest, right? It really should be present in your mind as you're writing, right? What's the goal? How are you going to bring that all together in the very end? Um, so I think that this is something that really should be paid attention to, and we're going to help you learn how to do that today. Yeah. So just a kind of a lighthearted observation on the power of conclusions. We spoke before about the distant days of 2020, but I don't know if you people listening to this will remember as far back as 2019, uh, when, uh, as the common internet joke goes, the worst thing to happen that year was the Game of Game of Thrones finale. <laughs> and I, I, I think there's some... Something interesting about that, because, I mean, obviously it was such a well-crafted, phenomenally popular series, but the conclusion was a, a fan disappointment. A lot of people who had loved the series up until that point uh, really didn't like the way it ended. And it really seemed to reframe the entire experience for a lot of people. All the goodwill that they developed was kind of expended. And suddenly when people thought about this, what was it, eight seasons? Uh, nine seasons, a lot of seasons. Um, I want to get letters about that. Suddenly, when people thought about everything that had happened up until that point, they saw it all through the lens of that really disappointing, uh, at least according to fans, uh, final episode. And that expended a lot of the goodwill. It, it made people think about everything differently. And that's kind of a lesson that I want people to have in mind when it comes to write their conclusions. I know, thinking of kind of a counterexample, I don't know, Breaking Bad comes to mind immediately, right? If you've seen Breaking Bad, there's also like quite a few seasons of that. But you get this buildup, you see the character changes, and in the end, right, we feel like there has been like just justice served, right? We feel like things are where they should be. It's a little bit sad, right? I mean, the series is, gets a little dark, um, but you feel like everything's kind of in the right place. You feel like Everything that's been building up has kind of come to this explosive conclusion that feels right. And you walk away from that thinking, okay, yeah, I feel like they delivered on what they were getting up to, right? As opposed to something like Game of Thrones where people were like, well, I didn't want that ending. <laughs> Why'd you do that to me? Um, so there are a lot of really good examples uh, there, but think about why you feel a certain way when you see these series or read a certain book, right? There's a reason the conclusions leave you feeling satisfied or not. Exactly, and, and the, the way that they change your experience of the entire shows. The work that is done in a 1,200-word, 1,500-word travel story is quite a bit different than in a you know blockbuster film, but you are also taking the reader on a journey. And what you do in that conclusion will influence the reader's relationship with them. So if you, you don't have to do um, what is called a... Uh, Paraprostokian, which comes from para against 
and I think it's uh, prosdokia expectation. So against expectation, that's you know when there's a twist in the ending. You don't have to do that. And in fact, you don't really see that that often with travel stories, partly because they tend to be factual and there's less room for uh, such shenanigans. <laughs> but it is a good way to uh, sensitize yourself to the power of conclusions. So when you're next writing and when you're writing your conclusion, concluding paragraph, uh, respect the significance of the, the venture that you're about to embark on. So now that we've spoken about how important conclusions are, let's talk a little bit about what a conclusion can do specifically in the context of a travel story. What is its role, what it can be expected to achieve, what you can do in it. And then, uh, as we always do, we're going to go through a handful of select intrepid time stories where the conclusion really works um, and introduce those to you. So unlike the introductions episode, where we could speak about the introductions in isolation because they're designed to be read cold, they're designed to be read first, you can't really understand a conclusion without having read the, the piece that it, that it concludes, uh, obviously. But we will talk about the different ways in which a successful conclusion can be achieved so that when you are next facing the blank piece of paper, you will have a, a sense of a number of techniques that you can deploy in order to pull off a conclusion that is satisfying to the reader. So one of the most important roles a conclusion can play in a travel story is to deliver on the emotional promise of that story. So if you're writing a narrative travel peak, chances are driven by real deep feelings. The story that you've experienced, this time that you uh, were robbed overseas and therefore you were nervous and angry and afraid and frustrated, but then you were helped by locals. So you were grateful and comforted and had your sense of wanderlust uh, restored. This emotional journey that you have gone on leaves the reader, you want to leave the reader feeling a certain way. So if you are narrating your emotional journey from feeling uh, scared and afraid to uplifted and confident and curious, this emotional promise where you want your reader to be emotionally, your conclusion seals the deal on that, it emphasizes it. So we'll discuss practical examples of some ways that that can be achieved. But one question to be asking yourself in the back of your mind as you're crafting the conclusion is, what do I want my reader to feel at this point? What emotion do I want them to feel? Right. And I think that a lot of people try to leave readers with a positive emotion, right? That's generally the goal, right? Usually a story will start out with some kind of, like Nathan said, some kind of frustration, some kind of anxiety, some kind of fear, and it'll end with you feeling better in general. But it's not the only way to do it, right? You can leave the reader feeling a sense of anxiety or a sense of frustration or a sense of fear, um, but you need to know why you're doing that. If you're going to leave them with a little bit of a negative emotion, there needs to be a very good reason to do so, right? It's probably because that reflects something in the story and something that hasn't quite finished in one way or another, right? But you need to know why you're leaning toward a certain emotion in the end, yeah, uh, stories about uh, this is a very good point. And stories where I mean, not all of the world is a is a beautiful and wholesome place, uh, of course. And real travel writing is honest travel writing, and sometimes it explores people who've gone through who've gone through suffering, injustice uh, that that occurs around the world. And you want your reader perhaps to feel a bit uncomfortable about it in order to 
perhaps take some action in order to be aware, in order to help tell an important but unpleasant story. So that's legitimate too. And it can be done, but you, you need to know again why you are creating that emotional effect. And regardless of it being positive or negative, and not necessarily, but often, writers do choose to impart more explicitly a certain lesson. So this sort of can mirror the emotional arc. You, when an emotional journey could, for example, go from a negative emotion to a positive journey, map through the travel experiences that you've gone through. The information can be just very simple. You didn't know something and then something happened and then you did know something. You learned something. You learned a lesson. And often the conclusion can serve to drive home that lesson by repeating it, by revealing it in a different way. So that can be another role of the conclusion as well. In addition to uh, fulfilling the emotional promise, it can be about cementing lessons learned. Now, again, with this, kind of have to be careful. So um, I don't know if listeners of this have watched any of Anthony Bourdain's travel shows. He, yeah, a lot of travel writers really like him. Uh, some obviously don't. He's very, he's very much, well, unfortunately, he passed away, but he, is a, he had a great deal of personality and swagger, which some people found captivating and, and others found annoying. But he, he did this thing at the end of his episodes. He'd be under traveling in Vietnam or France or wherever he was, and he'd meet locals, and he, he, had, he had this real talent for just having meaningful, authentic conversations with people and becoming their friend and eking out their story. And at the end of the episode, he'd often end with a bit of a spiel that was kind of, they were actually, that was my least favorite part of many of them. I think they started to become a bit ironic and self-aware towards the end, but he would end with, you know, something uh, like, and I suppose in the end, we all meet other humans who have gone through experiences. And at the end of the day, and the sort of portentous, profound sounding lesson about life, the universe and everything. And I'm not doing Bourdain justice. So he, he did it far better than that example. But it can sound very contrived if you're ending your story with a conclusion that attempts to bestow worldly wisdom. That said, cementing lessons learned is a very valuable function of a conclusion. So strike the balance there. Don't overdo it. Do it delicately. Thanks for listening, everyone, and don't forget to check out our new travel stories published weekly on IntrepidTimes.com. See you next time.